0: Welcome to Sonics Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonics Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonics Flight. This is episode number 25, Alaska by Sonics. So we're going to talk to YX builder Jim Hickey uh, after completing his Alaska trip. This was a, a fairly epic trip. I know that gets used a lot, but I think this, uh, this certainly qualifies. Uh, his trip was filled with some some really, really interesting stories, some spectacular video that he captured, and I'm sure a few unpleasant surprises along the way that he'll tell us all about. So we'll hear about his trip. We'll hear about his thoughts on making a trip and planning and, uh, and what it's like to do something like that uh, in his Sonics. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic 1374. Joining me, first up, is John Gillis. John flies his Jabiru-powered YX from his airpark home in Colorado. John's best known for his custom touches on his plane, like his tilt-back canopy, his his famous speed cow, very famous, I might add, and his uh, his popular tow brakes. So, John, uh, what are you up to lately? Actually,
1: I'm pretty excited. I'm going to start my... Uh glider soaring training saturday oh nice to get my rating and i'm also going to start towing for the uh, glider club
0: nice are are you going to try and uh like bust it out quickly or are you going to space it out over a couple of weeks or months or how do you see this unfolding
1: well i had to join the club with a um uh what they call an equity membership so i had to kind of put a little bit of money in to uh it's like prepaying for your stuff and so I'm going to try to hammer this out fairly quickly. My instructor says I need to go for my commercial rating because they need pilots to take people up on, uh, you know, discovery flights, and so I need to get that. And since I'm already a pi- private pilot, it's pretty easy to get that.
0: Okay, cool. So you're going to be uh, introducing new people to to soaring. That's pretty cool. Well, I hope to. We'll see how it goes. All right. Good deal. So also with us is Gary Motley. Gary's a longtime pilot. He's a multiple airplane builder, a former CFI, and has thousands of hours of GA flying. So Gary, uh, we know your project is getting close, but what's the latest on it?
2: Well, I'm still bleeding all over. You should look at my scalp. It's just just an utter mess once you start dealing with a high-wing aircraft again. You kind of forget things are hanging over your head all the time and just walking into them. So now I've got red and white tape splattered just about all over this thing so I can try to visually clue myself to duck better. But anyway, my next uh, inspection is scheduled for the 19th of September, so just trying to get all the paperwork together and cross my fingers and hope things go well.
0: You know that uh, OSHA requires workers to wear hard hats where there are overhead hazards. Maybe that's what you need to do.
2: I should do something because a regular ball cap just does not work. At the last gouge, I got went right through the cap into my <laughs> skull. So, yeah, they're not they're not working out so hot.
1: Yeah, but you're so hard headed. Does it really leave a
2: mark? Oh, I'm afraid so. At this point.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you're in the uh, the final push. Um, so, what do you think it's going to be? You think it's going to be an easy coast into your inspection, or do you think it's going to be an all out sprint to get done in time?
2: Uh, no, actually, it's it's going to be kind of much easier than I anticipated. Uh, I'm, I'm getting the last big pieces put on there and rigged now, so I'm actually almost kind of running out of things to do, surprisingly.
0: Good. All right. Good deal. So, again, our guest this episode is Jim Hickey. Jim built YX-162, and... Uh, Jim, I have to say, um, you did a fantastic job on your plane. The, the paint job, the, the cool features, your, your wing tanks, um, I, I think we'll get into all that stuff. But um, I, I really enjoyed some of your videos where you, you explained some of those things you did and putting your plane together.
3: Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's been really, really fun sharing that on the YouTube community. Uh, I just kind of figured, you, know, you got to give back. You know, this plane has been so much fun. Uh, yeah, I really do like to share it with people.
0: And for those who don't know Jim, uh, Jim is based in San Diego, California, and uh, he's done a a lot of traveling. And and Jim, how many hours are you up to and how many trips are you up to?
3: I don't know how many trips it is, but I got uh, 602 hours. uh, As of last weekend, I did a trip up to see the eclipse uh, uh, up in Idaho.
0: Yeah, so 600 hours, Um, that's got to be a, a whole bunch of traveling. Because I don't think you tend to do a lot of one hour around the patch flights like I do. You tend to go places.
3: Oh, I do a mix. You know, I just haven't done any videos of my aerobatics. I tend to get a little airsick after a few loops. <laughs> that's
0: how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> if you're not stretching yourself, then, you know, uh, you're not doing something right. you got to pull a few more Gs.
3: Yeah, yeah. I might be time to throw some cameras on there and, uh, and see what comes out.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned the eclipse. And so let's uh, let's dig into that. Um, so, John, you guys went for the eclipse and Jim, you went for the eclipse. And I had a, a kind of a mundane eclipse story. But but Jim, why don't you kick us off? Tell us about your eclipse trip.
3: Yeah, sure. I flew up to uh, Garden Valley. Uh, EAA Chapter 105 was hosting a, a camp out and uh, a buddy of mine, a couple hangers down was signed up for it. So I, I joined the trip. Took about uh, seven hours from San Diego to get up there, two legs, and uh, we hung out. Van from Van's aircraft showed up with his RV-12, and uh, I was the only Sonics on the field, so lots of questions about that. And um, yeah, we got the uh, total eclipse for about two full minutes, and uh, it it was pretty spectacular. Hmm, very cool. Any video of that? uh yeah actually i i uploaded uh youtube i think it was yesterday uh maybe the day before uh of the trip so right in the middle i've got a i've got a picture of the actual actual eclipse and i put a a film over the camera so i could uh, do the partial too
0: oh okay cool all right well we'll put a a link to your youtube channel and people can go dig that video out and take a look at it and uh john tell us about your eclipse trip yeah well we um you know, we're only about an hour and a
1: half from the, uh, the total occlusion line here in Denver. And so, unfortunately, uh, from here in Denver, because it's a high metropolitan area, all of the airports along the line um, required you uh, uh, get a reservation to land a month before, and we missed that. So our plan was to head up, me and Carl, and a couple other folks from our Colorado Springs Airport, all uh, we launched. Um, you know, about eight o'clock in the morning, we landed in southern Wyoming and refueled, <clears throat> and then uh, launched to, to fly through the eclipse on the occlusion line. And that worked out really well. Um, we were actually at eleven thousand feet, um, flying right along the line when the occlusion uh, hit. And uh, I got two and a half minutes of uh, night
2: flying, which I haven't done in five years. <laughs> I wonder if it actually counts as nighttime. However,
1: well, I'm
2: logging it that way. Well, okay.
0: I, I would log it as eclipse time. You know how yeah, well, no, rare
2: is well, that? Sure, it meets the definition of sunset. But, you know, well,
0: you're it's such a
1: killjoy. Trivia, <laughs> you know, you being uh, an old CFI. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm logging it.
2: So Uh, I I probably would too. I'd put it eclipse time though. Something it's a point one night. Okay. (laughs) Eclipse is a better term. I'd use that one.
0: (laughs) All right.
1: Um, It was it was pretty cool though. Um, Being in the airplane, you know, I had my little uh, NASA glasses I got at Oshkosh uh, to look at it before it went total, and then when it went total, I we all turned southeast about a, a heading of about 110 degrees. And so it was right above our canopy. And, you know, I, I was looking up through the glasses and then I pulled them down. I said, wow, well, you can look at, directly at it, you know, during the total eclipse without having the glasses. So I felt uh, presidential at the
0: time. Oh, did you see any other traffic in the air? I, I, I saw lots of people's four flight with uh, planes everywhere on ADSB. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we were on the Wyoming Nebraska border and uh, in the middle of literally nowhere. And there were four planes around us on ADSB. Wow. So yeah, it was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, coming out of the woodworks. Cool. Well, Isaac and I flew um, in in Jackson. We uh, took off and climbed up above the haze, and uh, it was very, very hazy. Um, some some small cumulus were kind of building, and uh, didn't look like much as it was coming up. But then when it when it did have the maximum coverage. Um, It it got kind of a a twilight feel to it. Not particularly dark, but, you know, like maybe uh, in that last 20, 30 minutes before dark, you know, that that kind of feeling. Um, And the coolest thing there was um, all those little cumulus clouds. As soon as that happened, they just evaporated. I mean, just like... In, in, in seconds, it seemed they were all gone. So it was That's a field well of puffy clouds growing, and then they were just gone. And it was kind of this eerie stillness in the sky. And then the clips passed. We we got a good look at it. We kind of circled, watched it, you know, transit off the other side. And probably ten minutes later, we decided to come on and land. And uh, and about the time we were coming down, the clouds were starting to kind of come back and reform. <laughs> so yeah. it was very cool. <laughs>
1: My uh, friends on the ground said that they they felt a 20 degree temperature drop during the occlusion.
3: I believe it. Yeah, I would say that's about right. We experienced the same thing. Some people were grabbing for jackets.
0: Well, it was cool. I'm going to make plans to catch the next one in another uh, 40 or 50 years.
3: Mm -hmm. Now, seven more years through Houston, it should be rebuilt by then. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right,
0: well, uh, let's jump into, uh, into hearing about your trip, Jim. So why don't you start this off by telling us about your, your flying background and then kind of wrap that up with your Sonics building experience and, and kind of take us to the point where you're out and about in your Sonics.
3: All right, yeah, prompt me along if I get off track here. I've been flying since, uh, since I was at UCSD. Uh, they had a soaring club there, so I actually learned to fly sailplanes first and then uh, couldn't afford anything, so I flew hang gliders for a decade and then I bought a sailplane, and um, I sold the sailplane to build the Sonics. So I have uh, a about a thousand hours total, and six hundred of it's in the Sonics. So pretty much a low time pilot compared to a lot of guys. But uh, most of it's been for fun. All of it's been uh, you know general aviation or or uh, like I said, the hang gliding. The Sonics took about two and a half years to build, thirteen hundred hours. Um, you yeah, know, pretty easy build. You all have been through it. You know, there's lots of little things to figure out. Things that don't make sense from the plans or don't match up quite right, and you gotta figure them out. But nothing too hard. And then the plane's just been a dream ever since. Um, yeah, we'll talk about a few of the things that went wrong uh, on the trip. So there, you know, there's some weaknesses to the design. But in general, you know, for the price, you know, when I'm flying with the other guys in the RVs, and they're telling me how much they spend on their planes. I'm feeling like, well, I can buy a lot of gas for that extra money. Yeah,
0: it's uh, two thirds of an RV for about a third of the price.
3: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so the trip to Alaska, I've been something I've been wanting to do for a long time. In fact, I planned it for the year before, but couldn't quite do it, and I had to take uh, took three weeks off from work. And uh, it took me about uh, six days to get up there. I spent an extra night in West Yellowstone, and uh, and I. Tried to hightail it back. Uh, it took me about five days to get back. Uh, in the middle, my wife joined me. Uh, we, we took a 10-day tour in a, a motorhome.
0: So you said three days up there?
3: No, six days to get up six there. Six days. Okay. Yeah.
0: Six days up there, 10 days on the ground, and five days back.
3: Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: And, and, and what was the total sort of distance you know, from San Diego to Alaska? What, what does that work out to?
3: Uh, let's see. That's about uh, the way I went, about 2,500 miles Ah, okay. It was uh, let's see. Uh, Hobbs' time was around. I'm actually, li- looking at my log here, about twenty-four hours each way, slightly less on the way back. Mm-hmm. I did a calculation of my uh, air time, and uh-huh. you know the average speed ended up being right around one hundred and twenty-four miles an hour. And I think Dynon's counting that. I don't know how it detects that you're in the air, but I think that's what it's doing.
0: Yeah, it's got an algorithm that looks at your, um, you know, your altitude and all that and looks for that change.
3: Yeah. So So, it was was a lot of flying and a lot of, uh, I won't say complicated airspace, but it was different up there in Canada. A lot of different Mm -hmm. things you had to learn. And, uh, you know, they take take a different approach towards um, personal safety. You know, when you uh, file a flight plan up there, they open it for you at the time that you say you're going to take off, whereas... Whereas here, you got to open it yourself in the United States. So just subtle little differences like that. Uh, ran
0: into. And they require it all the time, don't they?
3: Um, sort of yes and no. If, if you're taking off out of an airport that has a radio operator, you know they'll just open it for you if you haven't filed. Um, but there were a couple airports where there was no practical way to open one. So, you know required or not, I didn't do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so Jim, when you're, um, when you're launching out of an airport with the radio operator, do you tell the operator
3: what your destination is? Um, so yes, if, if, um, if they're going to open the flight plan for you, uh, turns out that I had pre-filed in all of those situations. So all I had to do is, um, ask them to open it and they, and they did so. And the way that works with the radio operators, that they call it a mandatory frequency, but they're not a tower. And so kind of took a little bit to get used to talking to somebody. It sounded like a tower, but they were not giving me permission to do anything. They were just kind of asking what I was doing, what, what are your intentions, and then they would call out traffic.
1: Was that in the AFD, or did you have to learn something new um, to do that? It's part yeah, of the I CTAF. read
3: everything. Yeah, I read everything I could on the Canadian system. I just I didn't quite pick up on that subtlety. I mean, I knew they had the mandatory frequencies, but I didn't quite understand that they had these uh, radio operators. Uh, I just thought it was, you know, you were talking to other pilots, but, you know, there's actually a, there's a job there called radio operator. And yeah, that's what they do. They listen on the mandatory frequency. So
1: that's that's like someone listening on the CTAF when you come into an uncontrolled airport.
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the difference is is that they're you know, they're it's their job. So they're 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 sitting there uh and, and that's what they do.
1: Yeah. And they have a, a really strong Canadian accent and um and a real real pleasant people.
3: Hey, you're right there.
1: Yeah, hey. <laughs> so you're going up to Whitehorse, eh? Okay. Gee, <laughs> John, you're ready to
0: go. You fit right in.
1: Well, I've yeah. been to Canada a few Hello. times, but not in the air.
3: Yeah, it's a really neat country.
0: So give us, uh, kind of frame the, the trip. Tell us tell us what the highlights were. Talk, talk about your route. Just just kind of put it in some perspective of someone who's not looking directly at a map here.
3: Yeah, well, I started off in, in San Diego, and um, I headed up towards West Yellowstone. And uh, up there, West Yellowstone, they've got a campground off the end of the runway, or, you know, off the tarmac there. Really nice wooded campground, and they've got bicycles and stuff, so... I actually spent an extra day there. It was so nice, you know, rode into town. Um, And then, uh, you know, I had some radio trouble on the way up that I had to take care of. So I had to take my radio uh, uh, plugs apart and uh, re-insulate them. I I got some electrical tape and did that and got rid of the the scratchy sound that was happening. uh, Because I knew I was going to have to talk on the radio a lot. So then up in West Yellowstone, uh, you know, that's a vacation in itself. (laughs) I could have just stayed there for a week. Uh, but I took off out of there uh, to Cut Bank, and, um, and that's where I did my, my first crossing. And so, you know, setting up all of the, um, the flight plans that you have to do and the contacting uh, the Canadian authorities. They have a system there called CANPASS. Um, the, you sign up for this thing, and they basically pre-clear you. So once they've kind of accepted you into the system, the deal is you, you just call this one number, tell them where you're going to be. And um, then you show up there and the the customs people will meet you. If they don't show up at the prescribed time, you're free to go if you have this can pass thing. So it's it's kind of a cool system.
0: Did that happen to you or did they show up?
3: Yeah. On the way back, uh, they did not show up on the way up. They did. So the way up was a a more, um, I don't know, crowded airport, Lethbridge. And uh, yeah, they, they both showed up there, you know, they had their guns and their uniform and everything. And, they asked a few pointed questions, but then they just kind of chatted. It was pretty, you know, it was you know pretty low key.
1: Uh, Jim, did you have to do any special placarding on your plane, like larger numbers or anything like that?
3: So the larger numbers are if you go through the um, oh, I forget what they call the Air Defense Identification Zone, the ADIZ, and that's only off of the shore. So I went inland. I didn't have to get the numbers any bigger. But if I'd have gone uh, over the ocean, I would have had to get bigger numbers. I just didn't feel like flying over the ocean.
1: <laughs> I've got a friend that flew his RV up the route you did and came back down through the uh the coastal and had to put those numbers on.
3: Yeah, yeah, they uh they have you put these big numbers on. I I don't know what I would have done. I guess I'd have to tape something on.
1: Yeah, he did it with uh I think just electrical tape, just giant numbers just stuck on his plane.
3: Yeah. The only other thing I had to do was get a, uh, a customs um, sticker from the US customs. So I, was, I wasn't too happy that I had to add a sticker to my plane, but actually now it looks kind of cool. For a nominal oh, yeah. fee, I suppose. Oh, yes, yeah, a nominal fee. <laughs> Which was? Oh, God. I don't know. That was a while ago. It, it was nominal. I'm, I'm thinking it was 10 or 15 bucks.
1: Yeah, My, my friend's RV has that sticker, and he, it's a, a passage of, uh, of pride for him now.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a boat, right? <laughs> yeah. So,
0: Jim, once you were in Canada, did you follow the Alaskan Highway, or, or how did you go?
3: Yeah, so that was my intent, was to follow the Alaska Highway. And um, that first day I set off early, I thought I'd get pretty far, but I got I got flushed out of the mountains right away by these thunderstorms. It just kind of came out of nowhere. It was kind of like low clouds, and looked like, you know, if it was down here in Southern California, I would think, oh, that's a stable ceiling i'll just go right under it Uh, but these things built up pretty fast and they got really dark um, and started closing around me and then to my east was the uh, calgary airspace so uh, i was getting a little squeezed i I just called the calgary center and and they handed me off to uh, i think it was spring spring bank uh, outside of Calgary, I landed there and got a hotel. So I felt I felt pretty dejected that first that first night. Like I was all set to go, and uh, kind of got shut down by the, th- the thunderstorms.
1: Now everybody was speaking the Queen's language, correct?
3: Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay.
0: So how many days uh, you know following the highway through Canada?
3: Oh wow, that was uh, let's see the first night. Let's see, I took off out of uh, Springbank. And made it up to Fort St. John. And then uh, from there over to Watson Lake. So that's all the second day. And from Watson Lake into Whitehorse. And I kind of got shut down for a while. Um, so I kind of hung out in Whitehorse uh, after that for a while. On the, on the way to uh, Watson Lake, I bypassed Fort, Saint Nel- or Fort Nelson. And so the Alaska Highway does this kind of little dog I don't know what you call it, but the dog ear. And I cut across the dog ear. I'll tell you what, there was nothing out there. It was nothing but trees and unlandable glacier lakes with no shores. You know,
0: you probably thought, uh, now now I understand why the uh, the road went that way because there's nothing here.
3: There is nothing I mean I, you would have been dead from mosquitoes before anyone could get to you <laughs>
1: well that's, so, that's a good point if you did, did they require you carry any kind of a uh, self-protection, a handgun or or something to protect it from bears in that case
3: yeah there there was a, a whole list of equipment uh, it mostly centered on food um, as I recall it was uh, food enough for ten days. Um, and I had all of that, uh, you had to have fishing gear. Um, oh, I can't remember everything, but it, it's easy to find online. Um, but mostly it was, it was survival type gear. Um, you know, enough calories for the number of people on the airplane, that sort of thing. And then I carried a spot tracker with me, which is really nice. Cause it, it had uh, satellite connectivity the whole time I was on the trip i would just uh put it on track mode or i'd push a button and it would send an email to my wife to make her feel happy uh that she knew i was still alive
2: <laughs> when my you friend that places what kind of facilities did they have was there much there or pretty spartan
3: well the thing is there there's not many choices when you fly up the route i took i mean you pretty much are going to um, fort st john fort nelson uh watson lake Whitehorse, and um uh, So Fort Fort St. John had, you know, they've got commercial flights out of there, so there's you can get just about anything you need from them. Uh, Fort Nelson is a like a drop-off point for uh, oil workers. So there's hotels in town. Sometimes they're filled up, but I don't think there's much tourist type stuff to do there. And then Watson Lake, it's beautiful, but uh, it takes a um, taxi ride, like at least fifteen bucks, to get into town to do anything. Uh, They do have camping on the airport there. And then when you get to Whitehorse, then you've got all, you know, all of civilization. I actually stayed at Alcan, which is a, um, uh, an FBO. They charged, um, what was it? It was, I want to say it was 80 Canadian, uh, to tie down, but then you got a shuttle and got to use their shuttle. Um, and they, they called ahead for the hotel for me and everything. So I say it varied. You know, the final stop before I went into back to the United States was Beaver Creek and uh, they had um, a couple of hotels there and one of them was owned by a pilot and he just drove out and picked me up. So it actually wasn't that that hard to to get accommodations.
2: How about eating establishments anything wild?
3: No, nothing wild. I mean the the, the I don't know. Toke is actually in Alaska, so fast eddies Sounds more exciting than it is, but you know, they do they do pretty good business there past Eddie's. All the motorcycles are parked out front and motorhomes. Everybody who's driving the Alaska Highway, I guess that's the the first food place they've seen for a while. <laughs> so you,
0: uh, you you finished up the uh the Canadian portion and then uh tell us about the Alaska portion.
3: Oh yeah. So out of um out of Whitehorse, I took off on my first day to try and cross the border and um yeah, it was a little blustery, but the the clouds kept getting lower and lower, and um, so I kept getting lower and lower. You, you could still see under them, but at a certain point, I was a uh, I was probably four hundred feet over the road, and I'm thinking to myself, "This is not this is not very smart," <laughs> you know. Um, sure, you can land on the road anywhere you want, and there's plenty of open spots to do so, but um, it's not something I wanted to do. So. I hooked a U-turn there and it turns out I was just about a half a mile from a little airstrip that I could have waited out the weather. You know, I think the, the thing I learned is that it's just important to get down the road, you know, to latch onto the next airport, even if it doesn't have facilities, just get yourself there because the weather changes all the time Then it can clear up over where you are, uh, you know, the next hour. But if you're not there, uh, it's not going to clear up. So I ended up back in Whitehorse for another night, and then the next day I I headed out again, and it got really low, that same area. But once I punched through, um, I made it all the way up to Beaver Creek. But by then, I hadn't uh, filed to cross the border, so I waited another night to do that. And, um, yeah, so interesting uh, story about the uh, customs, the U.S. customs folks. When I called, the guy uh, tried to talk me into going to Fairbanks to clear customs. And he authorized me to make a fuel stop in Toke and then go on to Fairbanks. It sounded like it's a great idea. Um, but that was the day I got shut down. So I, I ended up canceling all of that. But I, when I went and looked on the map, I realized that customs was on the commercial side of the Fairbanks airport, which is huge. It would have been a ton of taxiing. So I'm really glad I didn't do that. But the next time I called, he tried to talk me into the same thing. So I just told him, nope, I'm stopping in Toke. So he cleared me to, uh, to Northway. And then did not show up. (laughs) Had to call customs again. And they said, okay, we got an agent in Tok. Just fly over there. We'll meet you there.
1: Yeah, I've I've heard it's very challenging to get from the Canadian side into Alaska. Because normally you you land right across the border. And then you call someone and have to wait an indeterminate amount of time.
3: With no fuel.
1: There's no fuel there to
3: refuel. Yeah, so... The place where you clear is Northway. It has no fuel, but you call ahead. You, you, you've you established a time to meet. It's just that they didn't, he didn't write it down in the log. So uh, what I figured out, I ended up talking to a supervisor and she kind of said, hey, we've been having a lot of trouble with people crossing the border here and we're just trying to get to the bottom of it. I didn't say anything like, I think I know where your problem is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, once I got a hold of her, she said, yeah, just fly on over to Toke. That's where they have the fuel. And uh, sure enough, there was a customs agent there. Yeah, he pretty much Did was you? like, show me your medical, you know, show me your pilot's license. And that was about it.
1: Well, I know you have uh, the extended wing tanks, but if, for someone who doesn't have that, would that be a real challenge? To Yeah, uh, it, could to... Be.
3: it could be. What I would um, say, though, is there's, there's places to land. And so what you could do without getting all fancy is you could carry some extra fuel with you. You know, land at at one of these gravel strips that doesn't have fuel, and just uh, refill out of the cans. It does require you know reserving some space and carrying gas in the cockpit, but it uh, it could be done.
0: All right, Jim. So, tell us about some of the the more interesting sights you saw when you were out and about.
3: Oh wow, flying up through Canada. I mean, you just you just can't believe the the Rockies, the Canadian Rockies. It's just just hundreds of miles of these snow snow capped peaks. It just. It, it, and you look deep into them, you know you get that parallax shift from flying along. You just can't believe how far they go and how much mountains there are. I mean, nobody can name them all. it was It was just spectacular scenery. Um, and then, of course, uh, once I got into Alaska, the thing that I really wanted to do was was go down to Denali and uh, fly around the mountain. And I was lucky enough that uh, I was able to get over the cloud deck and get some really nice uh, video of that.
0: Yeah, so, so tell, us, tell us a little bit about that, that Denali trip and, and just kind of how you did it and what you did and how you did your video and all that. I want to hear about that specifically.
3: Yeah, well, I, I got to Fairbanks uh, after crossing the border, and they've got a nice campground there. And uh, basically what I did was, um, it was the next day, uh, had all my cameras charged up. And then I flew down to Talkeetna, which is um, it's kind of a famous little area. It's a sort of a hippie town with uh, mountain climbers hanging out. And they, they jump on these bush planes and uh, fly out to the glacier, and they start their climb from there. So from that airport, I refueled, uh, hooked all the cameras up, got them all running, made, made sure everything was going. And I took off out of, uh, out of Talkeetna uh, and then headed up um, you know, towards the mountain. And it's, um, you know, they have the glaciers come out and their ice flows at the end. So kind of a muddy, icy looking thing. And as you get further and further up, they turn more into the into the glaciers. Um, the hardest thing really was, was getting up high enough. Because, you know, as, as you get higher and higher with a normally aspirated engine, it just gets harder and harder to climb. So it, it took a long time to get up high enough to go over to Denali. So, you know, I circled another peak that was um, kind of to the. I don't know to the west southwest of it uh, to gain altitude, basically. What altitude were you trying to get to? Um, well, I ended up getting to fifteen five. The cloud deck looked like it was around fifteen, um, and I just I couldn't get much higher than that. And so I circled, you know, I circled Denali at fifteen five with a cloud deck under me, uh, thinking to myself the whole time, "I'm I'm glad I have this Dynon system with the." Uh, with a 3D terrain representation if I ever had to glide through that cloud deck.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have showed you right what which, which ridge you were going to hit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you were about 5,000 people over the summit then?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's got to
1: be pretty damn impressive.
3: Yeah, that, that is a big mountain. And, 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 yeah, like I said, everything's just so beautiful there. I did not see any hikers. I thought, you know, I thought when I flew around I'd at least catch a glimpse of some people climbing the mountain, but uh, either they were too small or my eyes aren't good enough, yeah. but just beautiful scenery. Now you were staring at your dining and you weren't really looking at the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. You know, we, we just keep our heads in the <laughs> cockpit now and play with our iPads. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. So Jim, would you say that was your favorite part of the trip?
3: Yeah. From, from the flying part. I mean, that was really kind of what I had envisioned, you know, the whole time. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was the highlight for me. And the thing is, you know, the Sonics is kind of an odd duck up there. You know, got a lot of Super Cubs and Cessnas with Tundra tires or floats. And so I wasn't really going to be going, you know, landing on a, a sandbar or anything like that with the Sonics. So I kind of was, you know, sticking to the paved runways or the gravel runways. Um, and so really most of my exploring was done in, in a motorhome after my wife showed us.
0: All right, well, let's shift gears and let's talk about uh, challenges that you encountered.
3: Yeah, I think the major ones I kind of hit on them a little bit were the weather. So weather was a constant challenge. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, with our airplanes, they're really not designed to fly through the rain. But if you're not willing to fly through the rain up there, it's, it's tough going, you know, because it, it rains a lot. And, and once you're on route, your odds are you're going to end up flying through some rain because you want to stay over the road so when i fly to oshkosh and there are little rain cells that's easy to fly around them but flying up the alaska highway uh, if there's a rain cell it's pretty much fly through it or land on the road and so you know when you fly through the rain in the in the sonics i don't know if anyone's successfully waterproofed one but mine leaks right through that front bow and that's right over the instruments so i would either put a um you know, a towel up there, or my jacket, or something to to keep the rain off of the off of the instruments.
0: We we've talked about that um, <laughs> on, on any long trip. You got to have your uh, your your leak towel
3: just yeah. ready to go. <laughs> well, I know my my old prop, my uh, Sensenich. Uh, when I flew to Oshkosh, even if I went through a little bit of rain, it would start to erode. You know, the leading edge a little bit, get down to the primer. But I have this new Prince prop, and it it held up really well. The only damage it took was from uh, landing on gravel strips have a little bit of pitting, really minor on the very tips Mm -hmm. um so weather was the main thing i think um you know that was where i realized some of the limitations of flying you know light sport up there is um you know you definitely need to be able to fly through some rain unless you're gonna or you'll end up waiting a long time for clear weather
0: right well i have a few things here i wanted to ask you about yeah so what about just um, the 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 monotony of of these long legs? Did you have that as a challenge, or did you keep your legs short enough that you didn't get bored while flying?
3: Yeah, I never really got bored. Um, you know, I've certainly experienced that cross country, in the United States, you know, across the Midwest. Um, uh, but but on this trip, everything was brand new and, and you know exciting, and you know all this beautiful scenery. So it really didn't end up any, uh, legs were. I felt bored until the way home. Um, and the way home, I, I did something, you know, sort of on the edge of, of good pilotage. I, I flew for 15 hours total. I was awake for, for 20 hours. I was, uh, 15 hours of Hobbs time. And so at every stop I would go through and do my self-evaluation, you know, am I fit for flight, you know, et cetera. But on that very last leg, oh my god, my my butt hurt, my legs hurt. Uh, I don't know if it was monotonous, but it, it was it was not comfortable <laughs> that last uh, three hours. <laughs> that's about double
0: what I what I can typically do, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long stretch. Jim, do you have autopilot?
3: I do have autopilot, and that that helps a lot because you can okay. you know, put that on yeah. and then deal with things or eat a little snack or, uh, you know, double yeah, check I can't the imagine doing planning.
1: a 15 hour if your hand flying the thing the entire time.
3: But Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be, I really know you're a tough
1: man. So
3: yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I, I met a tough man in, in Alaska. Um, I don't know if this is a good time to tell you the story of my landing. your uh, uh breakdown. Well,
0: let's, let's push that off just for just a second. Sure. Um, so, Okay, so we hit weather and boredom. Uh, what about navigating? Was navigating a challenge or was it easy because if it was easy, why was it easy?
3: Yeah, so I ended up buying all the charts um, from, was it um, NAV? What do they call themselves up there? They've got a name for their uh, air traffic uh, folks. NAV Canada? Yeah. Something like that. The, the thing that we're we're trying to avoid down here, you know, the the right. private uh, organization, right? But anyway, I bought all those charts and got them on my Four Flight, but uh, they they wouldn't uh, show up on the Dynon. That wasn't really a big deal. I just had to do my navigation via Four Flight, and of course, I had a backup uh, backup iPad. I, I was probably overprepared. I had my phone, uh, two iPads, and the Dynon for uh, for navigating.
0: And Four Flight worked well, then, huh?
3: Yeah, flight worked well and, and, you know, all the Canadian information was there and available. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty straightforward from that perspective. Yeah. Once I realized stick to the highway, no matter what, um, then it got even easier because, you know, really you're just following the highway to the next, uh, to the next airport.
0: Right. <laughs> right. So we, we talked about fuel, but, um, was that, was that really a challenge or did it just require you to fly the only route with fuel? And that's what you did.
3: Yeah, the, the airports are pretty much spaced out. Um, you know, I, um, I don't know what the longest leg I did it was probably three-hour leg. I'm looking through my logbook right now. Yeah, from Fort St. John to Watson Lake, that was the time I skipped uh, Fort Nelson. That was about three hours. Um, and on that one, I burned 20 gallons. So without so it, the extended tanks, that would have been tough. Yeah.
1: yeah. Had you have not had the extended tanks, could you just drop into Fort Nelson and made the trip?
3: No problem. Um, let's see. Let's go look at Fort Nelson. Yes.
1: I, get, I guess the question is, do you yeah. need extended tanks to do this trip?
3: I think you would need um, extra fuel somewhere, whether or not you need to plummet into your system. I don't think you need to it into your system, but you would need extra fuel at some point just to feel comfortable. I think the the white horse to Toke, yeah, that one, that was about. Oh, well, again, yeah, twenty-two gallons. So, so I, I definitely you're you're going to need extra fuel one way or another.
2: Well, some of that also depends on your engine choice as well, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, but Gary, if you're doing a narrow V, you're going to be up there. You got to like spend a month with food. So the fuel versus food.
2: No problem. I can carry more fuel, I mean more food than I
0: need for fuel. So,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Jim, I've heard about people like stopping and landing at a gravel strip and then walking to the gas station and carrying some cans back. Did, did you see any place where that would have been convenient or is that is that just the really hard way to do it?
3: Uh, I, it sounds like a really hard way to do it. I know uh, um, Robert Barber did that at one point. I think he actually drove down the road. Yeah. To get some fuel, but um, yeah, no, I, I found uh, I was able to fuel up at airports that you know, were just like down here in the states. You know, they had either a self serve or or a guy in a truck uh, to fill you up. Um, and of course, I burn hundred low lead. I haven't done the auto gas stuff yet, so I needed the the aviation fuel at any rate.
0: Okay, so you weren't looking for gas stations anyway. So no, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, the last thing on my list is um, is packing the airplane. How how did you pack it so that you had room for all your stuff? That seems like that'd be a, a fairly good challenge.
3: Yeah. So I've I've done some modifications to my plane uh, for to hold camping gear. Uh, one of the things I've done is um, I have a uh, a far aft station that I created out of uh, cargo netting behind the normal. Um, Baggage area. So basically, I put a cargo net over the uh, top of the the fuselage, you know, so that stuff won't fall in. And I can put my sleeping bag there. So I have that programmed into my weight and balance uh, thing. So that gets a big, bulky thing out of the way. And then my baggage area, I made a hard sided baggage area with um, pieces of aluminum. And uh, that can fit a lot of uh, stuff can cram in there pretty well. And then I use the front floor, I take my um, canopy cover, um, which comes in a bag, and I I stuff that up there, and then I put my heavy tools in the top of that bag so it's far away from the rudder pedals. And then there's only the fluffy back part of the bag that could possibly touch the rudder pedals. And I've tested it. Even if I push it up against the rudder pedals, you can still push into the canopy cover. So I feel pretty safe with that setup there. And that tips the weight forward, which is really nice, you know, with mm-hmm. the weight and balance on the Sonics can go can go aft if you're not careful.
2: I've used that area too, but I've also used the torque tube for the flaps to, to loosely secure things to make sure they didn't shift while I was in flight.
3: Yeah, that, that, I, I thought of that too, but I went for the simple. <laughs> hmm.
0: Okay, so so in the end, you found ways to carry all your stuff. You didn't have to leave anything at home, huh?
3: Yeah, and the, the thing is, is that I took way too much stuff. So at, at the end of the day, I, you know, after reading everything and being worried about mosquitoes and bears and all that stuff, I, I think I really overpacked. And so, you know, when I do it again, I'm going to bring a lot less stuff. Uh,
0: so, so, specifically, what are you going to leave at home?
3: Well, I brought like all my extra tools, I have a, um, a, a bicycle tool bag. And as I've been working on my plane, I've filled it slowly over time with every tool that I've ever used on the actual plane while I'm doing maintenance. And so this, uh, I can roll it up. I don't know if you've, if you've ever use one of these things that uh, bicyclists use. Um, they don't carry it on their bike, mind you. It's for the SAG wagon. But uh, it's very heavy. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, on the flight home, I actually sent that home with my wife on the airline. And I have a small tool kit, which just has like a screwdriver and a pair of pliers. Um, and that's what I ended up having to repair the landing gear with. So, yeah, some of the, the excess stuff that, that I could pick up, I would definitely not carry and certainly heavy things.
0: What about like clothing? Did you did you bring the wrong clothing or too much clothing?
3: Um, no, I had, I think I had the clothing down pretty well. You know, uh, you know jacket, raincoat. I had rain pants gloves, and and then lightweight uh, hiking stuff. Um, so that, that actually worked out pretty well. I ended up buying some t-shirts along the way. Um, so yeah, clothing wasn't too big of an issue. Um, it was kind of the survival gear that I sort of overdid. Like I had an extension cord and a battery charger. and that Stuff's just really heavy and starts to add up. Mm-hmm. Um, and really there's enough... People flying the Alaska Highway and and the airports have enough uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, you really can get some help. Uh, if you right. Need it.
0: Okay. So on the other end of that spectrum, was there anything that you really, really wish you had that you'd loved it on?
3: Oh, that's a great question. No, I think I was so overpacked. I think I had, I had everything I needed and more. So, oh, you know what? So, uh, I did forget to bring the paper maps. So I did have a backup for the for the uh, iPad uh, that I left at home. So that's really the only thing I forgot that I couldn't easily get a new uh, copy of.
0: Okay, well, I mean, with your all your other navigation gear, you really didn't need it. You just would have liked to have had it, huh?
3: Yeah, it would, it would have been just a nice backup to know something without a battery. You know,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
3: Hey, Jim, did
1: for your uh, all your electronic stuff did did you carry like a uh a uh, separate charger, you know, a battery pack that would charge your iPads and phones, or do you just rely on uh, going to a hotel and
3: recharge? Yeah, it? I uh, kind of overpacked in that area too, but it worked out. Um, I added USB chargers to the airplane. So I have four USB ports in the airplane now. So while I'm flying these long legs, I could keep everything charged. And then I have um, a solar uh, charger it's a forty-watt panel that unfolds, and it'll it'll recharge the uh, iPhone in about an hour, hour and a half, and the iPad in two or three hours. And then, of course, the normal assortment of chargers for the hotels. Yeah.
0: So the solar charger is that a uh, is that something that you're going to bring next time, or are you going to leave that home?
3: No, that's that's one of the things I'm going to keep. Um, okay. That's Relatively lightweight um, and super convenient. Yeah. In fact, I have people coming up to me at the Eclipse camp out. Can I plug into your solar cell? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right. Well, cool. Uh, So so tell us about your mechanical breakdown.
3: Yeah. So um, I don't know if you were aware that I had a brake tab failure a while ago. I'd written about it in the Sonics Foundation newsletter. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had the the shaking landing gear that uh, a certain number of folks get. And, uh, you know, I kind of attributed it to my initial hard landing and my first flight, uh, hogging out that hole. And indeed, when I finally took everything apart, you know, that hole had the holes in the axle assembly had gotten bigger. Um, And so I was getting this shake and the shake eventually broke the uh, brake tab. And, you know, I realized I really need to take care of all this. Right. And uh, so I got a local welder to weld on some collars for the bolts and uh, some uh, thicker plates for the brake attachment. And uh, what happened on the trip is that the, um, and that system worked great, right? But on the trip, in fact, in Watson Lake, during a takeoff roll, my landing gear bolt gave out.
0: The, The upper bolts or the lower bolts?
3: The lower bolt, which I'd never heard of before. But now, remember, I've just welded on these collars to that uh, assembly, making that incredibly strong. Right. So now, all of that force would, of course, be transferred to the bolt. So I, I don't know when it happened. I, I have my suspicions. I have a, in my video, I have a, a crosswind landing I did where I landed on one wheel, and that's the wheel that let loose. That's the only thing I could really come up with. But uh, how it happened was at Watson Lake, I'm on my takeoff roll. Um, I was probably 20 to 30 uh, miles per hour on the takeoff roll. And it started heading left towards the uh, the ditch on the side of the runway. And there was no weird wind or anything. And I had full right rudder. So I, I pulled the power back and I'm still heading left. Normally when I pull the power back, if it's a crosswind situation, it'll go right. Uh, then when I pulled the brake on, then all sorts of, crazy noises happened uh scraping sounds and I did a ground loop to the right and uh I was just completely confused and no idea what was happening uh shut down called the uh the uh, radio operators there at Watson Lake they shut down the airport uh but when I got out the right front uh the right uh, axle assembly had rotated around such that I was basically sliding around on the side of the wheel pants so, uh, yeah, that was pretty exciting.
0: So, so okay, so we, we, you're on the wheel pant, so obviously that was uh, probably at least tore up
3: a little bit. Oh, but yeah. Did you,
0: did you catch the wing, or did you damage the fuselage or the prop?
3: I, I was so lucky, you know. At, at the end of the day, when I really sat down and, and thought about it and, and realized you know, how many things could have gone wrong, or this could have happened on a landing, it could have happened at higher speed on takeoff, you know, so many things could have gone south on this so fast, I got so lucky. I didn't touch a wingtip. I didn't touch a prop. Um, you know, when I looked underneath, I saw that the, uh, the brake line had a kink in it, but it wasn't leaking. Uh, and really, I destroyed my wheel pants and I had a broken bolt. And at the end of the day, that was, that was all I had to deal with at Watson Lake. Mm, so wow. in, in a way, you know, having it happen like it happened was about the best way it could have happened um, to let me know this. And when I looked at the bolt, It had clearly been broken for a long time. Uh, It had a clean shear on one side and a broken shear on the other side. So you could see there was probably two millimeters of material that had been hanging on for a while, Mm -hmm. which explains why it kind of let loose on a takeoff. You think, why would it break on a takeoff? There's hardly any force there, right? But Obviously, it had just been hanging on by a nub for God knows how many land takings before it let loose. Mm-hmm. Sounds
2: like a new maintenance item. We've talked about the main bolts up on the uh, the engine mount. I mean, we need to start pulling those uh, axle bolts too and take a better look at those.
3: Well, again, like I said, I modified that assembly and made it really beefy, and so now all that force goes right to the bolt, whereas before it would have hogged that hole out. So, you know, let no good deed go unpunished, right? Yeah.
0: One or the other is going to be sacrificial. Yes, exactly. There's no getting around it.
3: Well, I got really lucky. Uh, I I think I I mentioned this, uh, you know, I I, I met this guy, uh, Darwin Carey, who's a, uh, he's a a hunting guide up there. I didn't know his name the whole time he was helping me. He he has a hanger there at Watson Lake. He got me a wheel dolly and he, drove his truck out to the runway and he told me all the way back to his hangar, even though he was, he had a, a client he was trying to take out to the hunting lodge. Um, and he, he was as nice as could be. Um, as soon as he had me situated, he threw me the keys to his truck, jumped in his two Oh six and took off and I never got his name, but I find out later he's a really famous, uh, hunting guide around there who had survived a grizzly bear attack. Oh, so, wow. Yes. And later on, I, I found a whole write-up on his story uh, on the Internet, and I was thinking, ah, anything I've gone through on this trip is nothing compared to being attacked by a grizzly bear. Yeah, one of those
0: types that the, the bear attacks him, and uh, and he chokes the bear out in the yeah. middle of the attack. that's
3: right. Yeah. yeah, Darwin Carey doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the earth down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. So, okay, so, so tell us about the repair process. So you're, you're back at the hangar, you, you dig into it, you figure out what the problem is, and, and then what?
3: Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I managed to get them to loan me a, a, a jack and, and enough wood that I could jack the plane up. And I was able to take the whole assembly apart and see the bolt and um, put some temporary, uh, actually, I put an Allen wrench in there to hold it. Um, and I went into town and I found out that they had an industrial supply shop there. And this, uh, it was closed at the time, but I got there the next morning. They had about twelve shelves of grade eight bolts of every size you can imagine. So I was able to pretty pretty quickly get the right size bolt. I had researched them and found out they were stronger than the AN bolts I was replacing. And um, yeah, I was able to do the repair there. I decided to do the other side while I was at it, and um, I'm taxiing around the runway doing my crazy crazy eights and doing the brakes and left turns and right turns and I'm, you know, putting the parking brake on checking for leaks and, uh, the radio operators are like, how do you get that thing repaired so fast? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I feel compelled to make the comment. It's, I guess, the engineer in me grade eight bolts are, are stronger in tensile strength, but they're more brittle. So they may not be an exact, uh, upgrade for any
3: particular application. Uh, understood. I, I researched, <laughs> I researched that as well. And I found all the pros and cons and the, there's a whole, uh, if you want to go online there's a whole, uh, blog about the brittleness versus tensile strength. versus. Yeah. But strength. when
0: you got to fly home, a great, ale <laughs> will do just nicely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jim, yeah.
3: I, I would
1: expect if you could get the bolt at Walmart, you would have used it.
3: Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was on the phone with my wife having her, uh, get ready to go down to the hangar to rummage through my old bolts and uh, get an overnight package up. The radio operators were laughing at me. They're like, you realize that overnight here means a week, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you know, like six or eight wraps of tie wire will probably do it just as well.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, since I got home, I, I did decide to you know, upgrade that whole assembly. So I, I now have the uh, Tracy O'Brien landing gear system. Um, it's welded down there at the bottom and so I I swapped that out now all I have to do is repair my wheel pants okay so uh,
0: you you didn't remount them I assume you just threw them in the baggage compartment and took them home
3: yeah I took both sides off put them in the baggage compartment Um, interestingly my oil temperature ran a little hotter didn't really notice much speed difference but I did notice um, higher oil temperatures yeah kind of interesting
0: well, that's what Carrie says, you know, when you have hot tops. He says, do you have your wheel pants on, your gear leg fairings?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Got to push it through the air somehow, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, good. That sounds like uh, when faced with a disaster like that, um, you had about the best outcome you could have hoped for.
3: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, was, uh, I got extremely lucky. But it also proved that old adage of, you know, be careful of strengthening one part of your airplane. You know, you're just gonna transfer the loads to a different part. Yeah. So I strengthen that axle assembly and obviously transfer the load to the bolt? Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, um, we, we hit on a whole bunch of your trip planning. Um, but I wanna make sure that we, we hit some of the, the high points. So if you can just kind of tell us about the prep work you did to just to get in and out of Canada. Um you yeah. talked about the, 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 this online system. Give, it, give us some of those tips and tricks on getting in and out of Canada.
3: Yeah, well, luckily, you know, we have the, the EAA site and the AOPA site, and they've got a wealth of information. So I basically, you know, did most of my research from the AOPA site. Um, and, you know, starting at least, you want to start at least six months before, you know, make sure you've got your passport. Um, and then there's a CAN pass you've got to apply for. So you've got to give yourself enough time for those things to clear, to make it easy. Um, Then there's the custom sticker. Um, Then there's, uh, if you go on the EAA site, there's an experimental amateur built uh, letter of understanding between the Canadian, um, I don't know, aviation authorities and the FAA. And so the Canadians will accept uh, an experimental amateur uh, built aircraft in their country. Um, and, but there's a little letter you're supposed to carry with you. So you've got to find that, uh, the, uh, U S customs, they're all over the medical. They wanted to see my license and my medical. That was, they knew they had to look at it. I don't think they knew what they were looking at, mind you, but, um, definitely they wanted to see that stuff. Nobody actually, if it
0: was drawn with a crayon,
3: they probably would have accepted it, huh? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Who knows? Because he was asking, well, how good are these things usually, how long are they usually good for? You know. So they really had no idea about general aviation. You know? but, but they See, knew they were supposed to ask for it. <laughs> Jim,
1: a sport pilot could not do this trip. I don't believe
3: so. Um, and I don't think you can do it with the new, um, the new medical, the new non-medical medical.
1: Basically, okay, so you need a exactly. class three medical to get through it.
3: Yeah, easier. yeah. Okay. Now, mind you, the the Canadians didn't really check. It was the uh, it was the U.S. Customs who checked.
2: So. Yeah, I've always had more trouble with the U.S. side than I had on in the international yeah. side.
3: The other thing I did was I went ahead and I got the radio license. Uh, Canadian Canada still requires it. You know, they didn't they didn't actually ask, but it's one of those things. If I didn't have it, I'm sure they would have. Um, and I got my insurance papers together, um, and then there's two things. Uh, so Can pass and uh, eAPIS. eAPIS is the U.S. Customs website. And you get an account there. And then before you cross, either way, you um, you fill out paperwork on their website um, describing when you're going to cross the border and who's on your plane and what time you're going to cross. And then you're supposed to wait till you get an email back from them and then you call U.S. Customs and arrange for a time to meet if you're coming into the United States. If you're going into Canada, you call CANPASS and tell them what time you're going to arrive at the airport. So it's not too bad. big problem I ran into was that the U.S. Customs website for EAPIS didn't work well with my um, Safari browser. There was a required field that got covered up. So something to, to check before you go.
0: Well, and it's not like Safari is a very common browser, so why would it work, right?
3: Yeah, it's not like on every iPad out there. Right, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. Well, when, when you think about the, the planning process in general, um, what are your lessons learned that you think are worth sharing with anybody who might be considering this?
3: Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of good information out there, um, but it's hard to really integrate in your mind what you actually have to do as you're crossing the border. And so once I did it a couple times, it made sense. But, you know, if you're doing a trip like this, it'll be your first time probably. So I think just stepping through these um, the steps, EAPIS and CANPASS were the two main things. And I was kind of afraid to do it um, without actually crossing because I didn't know if it would trigger something. But it turns out I probably could have gone to the EAPIS site and, Got all the way through setting up a flight without submitting to get an idea of how the system works, and then I would have known, for example, that my web browser wasn't compatible with their site.
0: Ah, uh, so you're you're even recommending doing a rehearsal and, and going through all that ahead of time?
3: Yeah, yeah, doing a rehearsal so you, you kind of get the flow, you know, in your mind of of, uh, of what it takes. Because it's not that it's not that bad once you once you kind of integrate and understand the uh, the steps in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, the United States wants you to to file when you're going in and out Canada only wants you to file when you're going in so and I hadn't quite figured that out. I kept reading you know the instructions in the hotel room before the day before the flight you know and I was like oh oh I still have to do EAPIS okay yeah but I wasn't thinking about that part going into Canada
0: mm. well, that's a good tip so the last thing I'd like to hear about is um, how did you document the trip? We know you did some videos, but just tell us your process, how you documented it, your camera setups, how you downloaded video footage, all that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, I have a MacBook Pro, and I've got um, I've got a GoPro with an extra battery pack. And then I bought two uh, Chinese knockoffs. So I think Yi, Y-I is the name of the company. They make 4K GoPro knockoffs. Um, they're not quite as good as GoPro, but they're you know significantly cheaper. Um, and I have a, a, a wingtip mount. Uh, I have a mount on my v tail. I have a mount in my cockpit, and I have a mount underneath. So I just have to choose which ones I'm going to do. And then I have a handheld 4K camera that um, takes really nice pictures. And I, as I'm flying and I see things, I'll usually try and zoom in on them or um, and then I'll take a picture of my uh, EFIS so I can remember where I was when I was taking that particular you know, video footage. Uh, I can always go back and cross-check where I was on the map when I'm looking at some feature uh, off on the ground.
0: Right. You think you remember at the time, but you won't.
3: Yeah, yeah, you really won't. Yeah, I'm, so I'm constantly going back to that footage and looking at the map that I took a picture of right before I took a picture of the, the glacier lake or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> And then I've okay. got i um, I've got an iPad Pro, and I download the you know the video cards onto it. It's perfectly powerful and light enough to carry on the plane. And,
0: and you had enough battery life to make all this work.
3: While editing the video, um, you got to be plugged in. You probably only last uh, two or three hours uh, editing video with the battery. Were you controlling
0: your cameras with an app, so you were turning them on and off, or did you have long periods of, of video you'd have to call through?
3: Yeah, long periods of video for the GoPros. Uh, I've kind of given up on the remote things. Uh, It's a lot of fumbling around in the cockpit, and I'm just seems like I'm always running into some problem, you know, one side or another of the software isn't working or needs an update or. So my uh, what I usually do is I I save the GoPros for something really interesting, and I use the handheld otherwise, and I'll just turn them all on. Let them run as long as they can because they'll run out of battery eventually, and then I'll go edit the video.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so every night you would charge your batteries up, dump your video, and uh, and, and do it again the next day, huh?
3: Yeah. And I wouldn't do the GoPros every time. You know, a lot of the a lot of the trip, I just used the handheld camera because I mm-hmm. I didn't want to spend my whole time being a videographer.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, because every minute of video takes three
3: minutes to edit. Well, there's that, too. <laughs> yeah, I've only just now finished uh, clearing out all of the uh, excess footage and, uh, and rendering my last video.
0: <laughs> well, I have a secret for that. I'll yep. share it with you. Oh. And that is, don't edit anything. Just dump yeah. it all on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jeff. I'm not going to watch it, so what do I care?
1: I know, and I don't watch it because of that, Jeff.
0: <laughs>
3: well, you yeah, know, the his, interesting his thing dad about dad
2: watches uh, all of it, he says. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah. For my videos, I, I really am doing them for myself and I'm sharing them because I think, I think it's interesting. And I, and I know when I was building, I, I watched everybody's video and it kept me motivated. So I'm doing these things. They're, they're my, you know, personal diary, if you will. I, I have a hard disc full of videos I've taken on all sorts of things. Like I didn't put all of my, uh, you know, the Jill and, in, in in my, um, you know, camper trip in there, for example, but I'll put the flying videos up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And, and that's a good reason, you know, it's, it's your, it's your log, it's your documentation. If you want to share it, great. If you want to put the time into making a sexy video, uh, people will love it, but really it's about what do you want to accomplish out of it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I find I, I go back to my own videos and rewatch them, you know, a year later. And I'm really glad I spent the time to, you know, put it together. Right.
0: Well, Good. Yeah, it's it's good. It's uh it's always good to hear people about how their process, you know, kind of unravels. So, that's good.
3: Yeah, I think I was a little nervous the first time I put up a YouTube video because I was like, I don't know if anyone cares or if they're going to put weird comments in, <laughs> you know. But it's actually people have been really, really nice and encouraging and uh, so, you know, it's kind of it's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, good. Good. All right. Well, uh, what is next for you now that Alaska has been checked off? You said you were going to do it again, but that's down the road. What's next?
3: Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, it's funny you ask because when I came back, I told my wife, I just want to fly, you know, in the United States to interesting, fun places with you uh, for the next year. (laughs) So I think my next big trip is probably Sedona. We're we're looking at a Sedona trip uh, over Thanksgiving. Oh, okay, but yeah, obviously, nice. I did the eclipse trip in the meantime, you
0: know? right, right. Well, you know from San Diego, Hawaii's only about twelve hours, so that's not yeah. a bad
3: trip. you know, I actually did that fuel calculation, and um yeah it's it's overgrossed <laughs> <laughs> by a large margin, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Uh, Well, uh, leave us with your final thoughts on uh, on on Alaska by Sonics or or really just any big, you know, epic trip by Sonics.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, really what I learned is I had this sort of idealized vision in my head of what this was going to be. And the trip turned out to be different, but more interesting, I guess. And it really was more about learning my own limits um, and being more comfortable in my plane than anything else, really. At, at the end of the day, it was, you know, this kind of self-discovery. You know, am I, you know, qualified to do this? Am I, <laughs> am I fit to do this? Uh, making the judgment call: Am I going to fly through this rain or not? Um, it was all very satisfying, very satisfying trip. I felt like I grew a lot as a pilot. I learned a lot about myself. And then just the amazing, beautiful scenery. I, you know, get up to Alaska one way or another via commercial airline or your own airplane. It's just incredibly beautiful.
0: Well, it's interesting. You talk about learning about yourself, you know, for, for years, pilots going out and flying their, their long cross-countries or getting out into new areas. That, that really was what that was about. Uh, go test yourself, expand your limits, build your confidence, get some real-world experience. And I wonder if perhaps with our, our various levels of oversight and technology, if maybe we're losing a little bit of that adventure because we've kind of boiled it down to a more mechanical process. You know, we send students out on their long cross-country, over well-trodden ground with arm floaties on so they can't get in any trouble.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's true. You know, having the having the Sonics and and flying to all the places I've flown to, um, that has been the largest, my largest growth as a pilot. Um, just launching out and, and going.
0: Gary, when, when you were, you know, up and coming, what was the first trip like that that, that you really kind of made that personal growth?
2: Um... It was probably really pretty early in my flying career. I was still just a, a private pilot flying a, a Skyhawk at the time, and took some family and friends um, on a kind of a weekend trip. And you know, you had the same kind of thing and problems, weather problems that Jim was talking about. And all of a sudden, you run into weather, and now you're kind of grounded. You know, what are you going to do next? Is making that decision. You got to say, well, you know, guys, I know that that cloud layer is only you know a thousand feet above us. It's only a few hundred feet thick, but we're kind of stuck. So it's just learning you know, where to make the real right decisions. And it's always tough. I mean, we always have a tendency to want to stretch sometimes. But doing that kind of stuff is great. You know, you know we talk about these gigantic trips like Alaska, which are wonderful. And I've also been planning that as well, as well as maybe even some international trips. But what I got in point really doing to really boost my confidence and problem-solving skills is even in your own home state, just start visiting every airport that's in the state. So many of those are just you know local day trips, half day trips, uh, but you can cover a lot of airports, and, and you know you kind of build your psyche and mental process on how you attack the plan of flight planning and actually flying the plane. So you can do a lot locally as well if you just get out and just just do it.
0: Well, and it's about building your reservoir of, of capability. And uh once you have an experience, you know, that, that becomes part of you. And now the next experience builds on the previous one.
2: Sure. But like I said, you can do it even locally without having to go, you know, thousands and thousands of miles.
3: Yeah, and quite frankly, the the long trip is just a series of short trips. Absolutely.
0: All right, John, uh what's what's your what's your long trip coming up?
1: Uh, next long trip is to rekla which will be, uh, East Texas. It's only about a six hour flight, um, you know, around Dallas. Uh, we've done it before. It's a very fun trip, but you know, now we, we're, I've gotten, <clears throat> you guys have said it's a, a series of short hops and that's true. You just got to be comfortable with dropping into an airport. You never landed at, um, you know, figuring out the traffic pattern uh, and just handling, you know, things you're not, you know, it's not your your normal airport you're landing at. But they're all about the same. And
2: you just get your comfort zone up. Yeah, they're all different view perspectives. So just get out and just do airport hopping in your own state if you need to.
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of my goals is to uh, land at every airport in Colorado just
2: because
1: <laughs> it'd be kind of cool. Sure.
0: Well, when we talked to Kip, uh, that that was exactly what he talked about. That was that was part of the attraction—just get out and go someplace new. And to the point where he didn't even care where he was going, as long as it was someplace new. Yeah, I mean landing at Lyman
1: to go get a frosty at the the um, the Wendy's. Well, we've done that about half a dozen times, and okay, that's okay, but that's not fun anymore. I'd rather go to the Wendy's in Lamar or. <laughs>
3: Uh, Garden City, Kansas. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things on my bucket list is Telluride. That's such a high airport. I've been scared off of it for a while. <laughs> well, I've, <laughs> I've done Telluride.
1: It is it is yeah. worth it. Um, but you got to bring your bring your uh, big thick wallet with you.
0: <laughs> well, Jim, thanks for running through the story. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. Um, hopefully, this will inspire some people to get out and about and uh, and tackle some of these things that are on their on their to-do list. I know that for me, uh, I tend to be a, a one or two hour flyer, and uh, I've had to kind of force myself to stretch my legs a little bit and, and get out and go a little further. So, And I'm enjoying it. I just, uh, I, I don't know, I guess maybe I have ADD. Uh, after a while, I start to get bored. <laughs> I, I thought you just
2: needed to carry a bigger lunch bag with you, Jeff.
0: Well, I don't like to talk about that, but that is a big factor in my planning. (laughs) uh, Where can I get another burger?
2: You know, Jeff,
1: the the key is you just have to load up your iPhone with Sonic's Flight podcast and pipe it through your audio system.
3: Hey, that's what I do.
0: (laughs) And if I could get an internet connection, I could rewatch all my YouTube videos, and I'm I'm good for Hawaii at that. Well, there you go. You You have autopilot, so you can do that.
1: I don't have to hand fly.
0: Well, yeah, I, I don't have autopilot yet, but maybe someday, maybe All someday right. soon. All right, Jim, good deal. Um, thanks again. Uh, if you get so inclined to come out to RecLaw, come out and hang out with us for a, a day or two. Um, it's it, Maybe it's a bit of a haul for you, but uh, it'll be worth it. We'll save
3: you a spot. It's definitely good.
1: probably something you've never done before. <laughs>
3: Well, let us let me say thank you to, uh, to you guys for putting this podcast on. It's a really great service for the Sonics community, and uh, all of us love it. We love listening to these things.
2: Well, keep spreading the words, letting a lot of people know. You keep running across people that never heard of us before. <laughs> Lucky souls. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> and Gary, you got to get that plane in the air because I want to go flying.
2: It's coming. It's coming. I can smell the fuel already.
0: Alright, well, hey guys uh, Good uh, good topic, good run through um, So, as always um, You know, you can catch this show on, on the website at sonicsflight.com You can get the the show notes We'll put links to Jim's uh, His builder webpage His uh, YouTube channel and, uh, and any of those other uh, important references, Jim, if you just send those to me, I will put them in the show notes. Anything you think is particularly useful for planning, even if it's just pointing to AOPA and, and EA, just send me that and I'll, I'll I'll stick them in. Sounds good. And it looks like our, our next topic is likely to be Jonathan Wolf. Uh, we talked to Jonathan way back in episode one. He's cranking away and he's got some interesting things to tell us about. His project is coming right along. He's working on some custom wing tanks, which he'll he'll probably tell us a little bit about. He had to to uh, replace his leading edge skins, so he went through the vacuum bagging method to bend those skins, and so uh, I asked him just to kind of run us through that process. He said it actually worked really well and was easier than he thought. I thought, well, that sounds pretty good, so we'll hear about his update and vacuum bending your leading edge skins. And we have a whole ton more topics. It'll be a great fall, and we'll keep cranking these out. So for the rest of you guys, um, get out there and fly. Uh, Jim, I know you will. Good talking to you again, and we'll see you down the road.
3: All right.
2: See you around, guys. All right. Talk to you later.
0: Well, you know, we're going to hear about your DAR inspection that's sitting around the campfire at RecLaw. So, mm-hmm. yeah, hope so. I hope you're you're coming down with Carl. I assume
2: I'm going to try to hit you ride with one of
1: you guys. Well, you won't ride with me because you're too fat, but uh, Carl oh, might have, have a- the one seventy five or the the Nanchang running.
2: Uh, I've dropped twelve pounds this last month alone, buddy. I just don't want to sit in the airplane with you that long. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>